Is it okay in the back? Great. So, good evening. When I was five years old, I got a needs improvement on my report card in show and tell. And uh, it's been an ongoing practice ever since. Spent about four hours this afternoon in my room um, pretending like I was a Dharma teacher and trying to put some stuff down on paper to share with you to um, give you some encouragement, some support, some inspiration. Um, I played around with some old talks. I even listened to an old talk of mine, and, uh, and I just wasn't feeling it. And so uh, I decided to come to the hall and, and do the sit with all of you um, right before the Dharma talk, and I started feeling myself again. And it's interesting because the working title of this talk is The Dharma of Accepting and Being Yourself. So I just want to acknowledge like how in awe I am of all of you being here on day three still. That (laughs) That it takes a tremendous amount of courage and perseverance to stay with yourself for this amount of time in silence, in community. It's probably going to be one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life, and some of you who are masochists will continue to practice beyond this retreat. And I can honestly and wholeheartedly say that after 18 years of practicing on this path, I truly love, accept, and can be myself. So, it is possible. But it requires a lot of patience, and diligence, and gentleness, and kindness, and compassion in doing so. So, in that spirit, I want to share with you yet another song. And my songs are like, kind of, um, are from like the 1950s and 60s, mostly because the sangha that I belong to back in D.C. is predominantly made up of white, middle-aged, and retired people. (laughs) So they kind of really enjoy it, so (laughs) I hope you will too at least indulge me. So just this song speaks to like just how challenging it is to be on this path. It's not easy. And a term that's used in this song is dukkha, which often is um, defined as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. I think many of us are familiar with those terms. So it goes like this. Duka duka down dooby doo down down Duka duka down dooby doo down down Duka duka down dooby doo down down Waking up is hard to do Don't take my pain away from me 
Let me live my life in misery. Cause if it goes, then I'll be blue. Cause waking up is hard to do. I love it when my mind is tight. And it keeps me up through the night. Come on, Buddha, it's just you. Cause waking up is hard to do. They say that waking up is hard to do. Why just one arrow when there can be two? Don't say my suffering can end. Instead of waking up, I want to be a couch potato again. I beg of you, just let me cry. Wise effort, I don't want to try. Come on, Buddha, get a clue. Cause waking up is hard to do. Doobie doo, down, down. Duka duka, down. Doobie doo, down, down. Duka duka, down. Doobie doo, down, down. Waking up is hard to do. So it's hard. And um, I did write some stuff down, and, but what I'm doing here is actually um, just taking a risk and just trying to speak from my heart. And I don't like these um, tables like in front of me because it feels like it separates me from you. And a lot of what informs me in my life and how I share the Dharma is feeling you. And so... Here we go. So the story you're about to hear is true. The names haven't been changed to deconstruct shame and ego and to empower radical self-acceptance. So I was born on July 23rd, 1964 in Manila in the Philippines. I only lived there for 10 months because my father was enlisted in the U.S. Navy and he was stationed in Hawaii soon thereafter. So he went to Hawaii and to set up our home and my mom came with me, two suitcases and $800 in her pocket. It's like many immigrants to this country wanting to find a better life for themselves and their children. And so my parents, um, I imagine, experienced a lot of racism when they got here. And it was very uh, much an early message growing up that it was not okay to be who we were. It was not okay to be people of color or Filipino. And a message that was reinforced in us growing up was that um, it's really important to follow the white people. Like if you want to be successful and make it in this country, you have to be like the white people. And around the age of five, another thing that I discovered that was not okay about myself was um, that I was attracted to other little girls, like I had little crushes on them. And it was back in the like, late 60s, that was not something that was modeled or something that you saw. And... Uh, so there was something in my little five-year-old being that recognized that this was not okay. And then another thing I discovered was that um, I didn't want to be a little girl. 
I had behavior and wanted to wear pants and shorts and didn't want to wear like girls' bathing suits. And um, I liked playing with trucks and guns and I would take popsicle sticks and rub them on the sidewalks and stab little girls with them. And uh, it's just not typical little girl behavior. And I could remember going to um, birthday parties of classmates or friends of mine and uh, always being asked by other little kids, like, are you a boy or a girl? Are you a boy or a girl? And I could remember, like, just feeling um, really embarrassed and humiliated by that. And so, you know, at five, I had like all this (laughs) burden already to carry, you know, of like, it's not okay to be from your culture, it's not okay, you know, that you like other little girls, it's not okay that you're, you know, born in the wrong body. And so I had to figure out pretty quickly, like, how I was going to survive, you know, how is it going to make it, you know, how is it going to live in this world? And the only thing that I could think of was like to be like the best little kid ever, you know, to be like good and behave and follow all the rules and get good grades and be a good athlete and play the piano and, you know, do all the typical good little Asian kid things. And, and that took me so far, you know. And uh, it gave me the sense of feeling accepted and loved. Because something, a story that I told myself very early on was that if anyone ever found out who you really are, they would never love or accept you. So you have to be everything but yourself. And so I went through life pretty much like that and... um, And then I noticed when I started getting into relationships with people that uh, it didn't matter what I wanted or needed. What mattered was what they wanted or needed. And that I would, you know, assimilate or I would um, conform to whatever that was, whether I liked it or not. I really lost a sense of self through that. And after a series of um, monogamous relationships that lasted like one or two years at a time, um, I recognized after a while that the common denominator in all these relationships was me. And so after about, you know, I guess in my early 30s, um, after a breakup, pretty traumatic breakup with with a woman who's a pastry chef, I decided, I no longer want the crumbs. I want the whole fucking loaf. (laughs) And so I decided, and that's when I found the Dharma. And uh, it was really an opportunity to take a good, hard look at myself. And in doing so, I thought, well, what the hell? You know, why not just go whole hog and just become a monastic? You know, then I don't have to deal with relationships or sex or any of that kind of stuff, right? As if that community didn't have its own set of issues and problems. <laughs> so um, there was one day I was in a dentist's office, and uh, this was like 14 years ago. So 
there was the gay paper there, and I just decided to like look at the personal ads, you know, because it's kind of interesting to kind of see how people put themselves out. And I came across his ad, and I'm like, wow, this is like my M.O., you know. Uh, maybe one more fling before the monastery. <laughs> and so I decided to, um, you know, get in touch with this person, and we met. And as soon as I saw her, she looked really familiar to me. And I said, do I know you from somewhere? And she's like, I don't think so. So we got to talking and f- learned later on that uh, we both meditated. And, uh, and she asked me where I meditated, and I told her. And she said, you know, I don't belong to that sangha, but um, I went on a New Year's retreat with them about a year and a half ago. And then in my mind, it went, ding, 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 that's where I know her from, because I was on that same retreat. And she was my Vipassana romance on that retreat. So imagine that, like a year and a quarter later, like this person that I was stalking in walking meditation, (laughs) I answer her personal ad. So when... You know, I figured that out. I, I didn't say anything because I was like, oh, I got to check her out a little bit more. I didn't, you know, just want to make sure that you're not a little. And so, got through the date, and uh, it was really sweet. You know, she was really wonderful and, and kind and loving. And, and um, she said, Well, what do you think at the end of the date? And I said, Well, to be quite honest, you know, on that retreat, I actually had a big crush on you. And she said, Well, I think that calls for a second date. So Wendy and I have been together for the last 14 years, ever since. And about a year and a half into our relationship, she asked me to marry her. And I was all flustered, because I had never imagined like, being married to anybody. And I was so flustered that I actually said, um, I do. <laughs> and when that came out of my mouth, it was like, that didn't sound right. <laughs> And, um, and we were pretty happy for the next couple months, and we were starting to make plans, you know, for the ceremony, and I started freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, I just told this person that I would spend the rest of my life with them. What the hell have I done? Because <laughs> right? to me, in the past, marriage has always been like this, you know, like your life is over, you know, like no more fun, it's going to be like boring and... Um, all that stuff, and, um, and I totally freaked out. But I was too afraid to say anything about it. So, um, so we actually didn't formally get married until years later, but um, in the meanwhile, what I discovered was uh, allowing myself to be fully known by someone. And I told her like, you know, all the things that I had been afraid to share with anyone else. And she just totally like accepted it and loved it. And I had never imagined anyone could ever do that. It was like one of the biggest gifts and biggest healings of my life. And at the same time, you know, our relationship's not perfect. As many of you who have been in relationship know. Um, I've been telling the teachers, I have this paraphrase of a Jesus quote about like dynamics between people. And it goes, um, when two or more are gathered in my name, we're screwed. Because <laughs> I've got to consider you know, this being here and this other being or this group of beings. Right? And it's not easy. 
and to be able to find ways to communicate with each other and to be humble with our flaws and to admit that we're wrong, to be able to say that we're sorry is really key. And so in doing that, uh, we've found different ways of like being in relationship with each other. So Wendy and I are not, are not very, um, somewhat conflict avoidant. And so we tend to be pretty nice up until it gets to the point where it escalates to like, ah, oh, can't stand it anymore. And then we'll notice that there's this uh, tone that we take with each other. Like, uh, why did you do that? And in parentheses, you effing idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, when that tone happens, all we do as a remedy is to just say tone. And it just kind of levels it out, right? It's that mindfulness bell that says, okay, you know, sort of overstepped something or harm is being caused. And so let's try again. And so being in partnership with someone that is uh, also on the path is, is really helpful. And to be able to get, like, you know, you can do over. You know, just like what we teach you here in, in your meditations, is like you can begin again. Like, we can make mistakes. We're, we're human, right? We're going to s- slip. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going to um, do the wrong thing. And once we acknowledge it's like, and we see the impact or harm that it's caused, we can say, do over, and we can try again. And so really it's about re-engaging, and, but it really requires us knowing ourself really well and then being willing and uh, wanting to know another. And so in these last couple days of um, being with you in groups, you know, a lot of different issues have come up around... Um, loneliness or a feeling of not belonging or um, transitions that you're going through or difficulties with family members or partnerships, um, you know, what's going on in the world. And just to really acknowledge just for a moment that all that's happening in the world actually mirrors what's what's happening inside of all of us. And the more that we're able to like recognize what's happening inside of us, because let's admit it, like we have um, inner turmoil, inner wars going on just inside of ourselves. And so what usually happens when we don't deal with that or if we don't understand that or if we haven't gotten intimate with that is that then we project it into the world and it causes harm and it just escalates from there. So, so here we are, you know, in this pretty amazing land, on this pretty amazing land, in this amazing retreat center, away from all that. The invitation is to really, like, be here and not have to worry about that right now and focus in on what that inner turmoil, what that inner war, what that inner peace, what that inner joy is like because it's all living in there and we actually get to choose what we want to focus our attention on. So it's not to say, like, to forget about, you know, um, our constant fight against racism or sexism or trans or homophobia or um, 
you know, the hatred and the uh, ignorance, you know, in our political discourse, if you can even call it a discourse. Um, there's just so much that we're holding externally and internally. And retreat is really a way of um, giving yourself energy so that you can go back out and go back out in a much more skillful way. So going through life, you know, with this body that I've sort of tolerated for 52 years and um, being a person of color and and being queer. Um, for a long time, you know, uh, negating those identities, like, worked. And it wasn't until uh, in my sangha uh, back in D.C. that we wanted to look at issues of diversity or lack thereof within our sangha. Um, when I first came to IMCW 18 years ago, other than the Buddha sitting, sitting next to my teacher, um, I was the only person of color in the room. And, uh, and it was that way for a while, and it was this interesting thing about feeling a, um, a specialness in that tokenism. Right? It was this way of like, oh, you know, how charming, or like, how, how cute. And so when we started exploring these issues within our sangha around diversity and inclusion, um, I started a couple of sanghas, a people of color sangha and a LGBTQ sangha. And it was just really interesting to see how the dominant culture sangha reacted to that uh, with a lot of pushback. Like, why do you need to s- separate yourselves out? Like, you know, we're all one, right? And I said, oh, we really need these groups. <laughs> Because my retort to that question or to that statement is, um, but whose one are we being? So, you know, we just continued to, um, you know, practice in these enclaves within the Sangha, and it was a real refuge for those folks, you know. And it was a real opportunity for me um, to actually, like, come out again come out as a person of color, come out as a, you know, a transgender person. But even still, like in these, um, you know, sanghas, like I was usually the only transgender person in the LGBTQ sangha, and I was the only Asian Pacific Islander person in the people of color sangha. So many times in my life, I've always felt like outside of, you know, where I thought I belonged. And so I actually came to... um, an LGBTQ retreat here at Spirit Rock about seven years ago. And I thought, oh, I'll be with my people. And I got here, and I'm like, so unhappy. You know, I'm like judging everybody, and I'm like, no, nobody's like me, and everybody's younger, and I don't have a piercing or a tattoo. I'm so old, you know. It's like all these things that I would say about myself. And, um, and just noticing myself, like, staying on the outside or pushing people away. And when I finally got like how much suffering that was causing me that, and that I was creating that myself, like nobody was saying like, don't come here or, you know, in silence and, you know, you're not welcome. It was all me. And the insight that I got from being with that suffering was that any reliance 
on anything external to me giving me a sense of belonging is going to be a disappointment. So what if I actually claimed that no matter where I was or who I was with, that I belonged? It just felt so much more empowering, right? To say, like, I belong here. You know, it's just like all, all of you being here for a young adults retreat. I've heard so many people say, like, they've been on, you know, more mainstream retreats with, you know, the middle-aged, white, retired people. And, you know, just feeling like outside, you know, outside of, and what was being spoken about um, didn't necessarily pertain to your life. And this longing to, like, be with your peers, right? And so it's great that we create young adult retreats and women's retreats and teen retreats and queer retreats and people of color retreats because we need to be together, you know, and practice. And as my teacher Larry Yang says, you know, ultimately this practice is to help you be with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Because the world is not made up of just young adults or just people of color or just queer people. Like we all have to interact with each other but coming to a place like this actually allows you to go deeper, faster, because you don't have to worry about necessarily so much that th- story of like, um, I don't belong here. And some of you may still feel that, and that's totally okay. Um, it's just a deep inquiry for yourself as to like, where is that actually coming from? And if there's any ways that you feel we as teachers and staff Um, are not creating a sense of welcome or a sense of belonging for you, we're more than happy to to address that. So when I was was a kid, I wanted to be um, a pediatrician. I wanted to be a doctor. That was my plan. You know, everything I did, like I didn't have... Like, I really also wanted to be a French fry monitor at McDonald's, you know, and, and have, like, the jobs that typical teenagers had. But no, I was on this fast track to go to medical school. And so one summer I um, worked on poultry parasites, and the next summer I cloned potato plants because I thought it would look good on my application, right? So, like, finally, like, get to college, and I'm majoring in pre-med. And then I realized, like, wow, not only do I don't like science, like, I don't even like the sight of blood. I can't be a doctor. (laughs) And I remember um, going to this uh, health fair, and um, there was this woman there from a local massage school, and she had her massage table out, and I walked by, and she said, "Um, you know, do you want a a free session? And we talked about stress a bit and how intense, you know, the workload was, and... uh, She's like, have you ever had a professional massage before? And I said, no. And she said, well, just lie on my table and I'll you know, work on you for a little bit. She worked on my shoulders and neck for about 15 minutes. I got up off that table and I'm like, who needs to go to medical school? Like, this is where it's at, right? But I didn't think mom and dad would be too keen on me, like quitting college and going to massage school. So I ended up... Um, graduating with a biology degree, and I worked in an AIDS lab for about seven years. And at the end of the seven years, I decided, like, you know, I did all this to please my parents. I didn't do this at all for me. 
And so what did I do? I signed up for massage school. <laughs> and I, had a, I have a private bodywork practice you know, for the last 25 years. And um, it was the best thing I'd ever done. You know? And it was this like, way of beginning to differentiate from other people's expectations to my own. Like what was going to make me happy? Because this was actually my life, not my parents' life. And it's interesting because my sister was supposed to be the lawyer and I was supposed to be the doctor. My sister and my brother-in-law sell mid-century modern vintage furniture. And, you know, I'm a body worker and, you know, a Dharma teacher, retreat manager. And, uh, and it, it took my parents a really long time to, like, understand what we did. Um, and so uh, they took pride in the fact that we were entrepreneurial, you know, <laughs> that we like live, fulfill the American dream by like creating our own businesses and being successful at them. So, um, so that uncertainty that I heard many of you talk about about like you know what am I going to do with my life, you know. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, this practice has helped me. Uh, develop this sense of um, faith and trust that if I allowed myself to be open to opportunity, um, these opportunities will come. And I remember like when I turned 40, I was having a little bit of a midlife crisis and I, I thought there's no way that I'm going to be able to do massage for the rest of my life. I'm getting old. My body is like wearing out. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. My partner was in acupuncture school, and uh, I knew that I didn't want to go to graduate school. Like, I didn't want to study at 40, and I didn't want to spend that much money at 40 either. So what I got clear about was, like, what I thought my life's purpose was. And at that time, my purpose was to serve. So I just threw it out, you know, to the universe and said, I'm here to serve. Show me. How am I supposed to serve? And so um, I'm really great at uh, organizing and managing and enrolling people to do stuff. And so I became a retreat manager and really loved that work. And because I was leading you know, these sanghas, my teacher one day tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, you're ready to teach. I'm like, what do you mean I'm ready to teach? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be a teacher. Like, I hate sitting in front of people and you know, sharing of myself. And, uh, but a big um, thing that I also uh, challenged myself with through this practice was anytime I felt a sense of fear rather than my typical response of walking, uh, running away from it, I was going to walk towards it. And so I started like slowly walking towards this role of becoming a teacher. And I think one of the biggest tests I got was when I taught um, a retreat and this young woman came up to me and said, you know, La, I really love the way you teach. I think you'd be great with kids. Do you have any experience working with teenagers? And I said, I have absolutely no experience working with teenagers and I'm quite afraid of them. <laughs> and so it was like, fear. <laughs> so now you have to do it. And so they invited me to go, and this is IBME. I think some of you have gone on teen retreats with IBME. Um, and so they said, uh, okay, so um, why don't we just have you observe a retreat and see what you think? So there's a weekend retreat in southwestern Virginia, about five hours away from D.C. And just go down there and, you know, just experience the, the teen retreat. I'm like, great, I'll be there. 
Two days before the retreat started, I get this phone call, kind of panicky. This woman says, uh, La, I'm so sorry, but I have to ask you a big favor. A ride just fell through, and you need to drive three 15-year-old boys down to the retreat. And I'm like, no! <laughs> Five hours with three 15-year-old boys. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to pick them up super early, so they'll still be sleepy, and they'll just sleep through the first you know, few hours of the drive, and then I'll take them to Kentucky Fried Chicken, we'll eat, and then they can put their earphones on for the rest of the drive. And that's what they did. So I... <laughs> So I was like, Phew, survived that. <laughs> Dropped them off and got to the retreat. And then, um, and so I noticed, like, you know, all these teens were getting together. Some of them had been together before. They were so excited to see each other, all that. And then I had this feeling of, like, oh, my God, my inner teen came out. And my inner teen was like, why did you bring me here? I do not want to be here. I don't like this kind of thing. I don't know these people. I, I don't want to have to talk to strangers, etc. And my inner teen just kind of took over. So I went to bed la- that night just feeling like, oh my God, here I am five hours away. And I drove these, I can't leave, right? I drove these three boys here and I can't leave without them. And so I have to stay. And so I... Um, went to the small group discussion the following day and the you know, leader said, you know, please share your name again and how are you feeling? And I said, um, you know, my name is Law and uh, I'm feeling alone and isolated and disconnected and I don't feel like I'm cool enough for you. And this 15-year-old girl like right across from me said, what are you talking about? Like, you're the coolest. And the boy next to her said, yeah, you shouldn't be talking about yourself that way. And my inner 15-year-old was like, they like me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was great, like after that, right? It was just this like, oh, like they're seeing what I'm not able to see or what I'm not wanting to see about myself. And so then two months later, dove headfirst and taught my first teen retreat. And I've been teaching them for the last like five years now. And these teens have been my greatest teachers never been with um, people that off the bat have just so much love and so much acceptance and compassion. When I um, started introducing my pronouns, you know, uh, they got it like immediately. Whenever the staff would mess my pronouns up, they would get really mad at them. It's like, that's not what law likes to be referred to, you know. And uh, so they're my greatest allies. And so just these like different layers of acceptance, you know, of like getting like this external validation that I'm actually okay. But the real validation really needed to happen in myself because it's, you know how you can sometimes hear people say nice things about you, but you still don't, you, know, you want to hear that, but you don't believe them. There was still a block there. So the last time I was here at Spirit Rock, I did my first um, month-long retreat. It was uh, two marches ago. And um, I'd never done, you know, three or three or four weeks in a row at all. And I went in just really, like, open to just kind of see what would happen, you know. No attachment to any outcome. Like, I was going to be way enlightened or I'd be more comfortable teaching or anything because that obviously hasn't worked. And uh, 
so, you know, I practiced really diligently. I went through all the sits. I um, even extended my sits, like, through a walking period into the next sit, you know, sitting for, like, almost three hours at a time. And it was like, wow, this is really great, you know. And I noticed, and I did metta at all my walking meditations. It was just like, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful or dedicated to somebody else. I was, I was so good, you know. I was like, this is so great. I got really cocky about it, you know. I was like, all right, universe, bring it. I'm ready, you know. And so um, three weeks into the retreat, I get a knock on the door. And, you know, when you're on silent retreat, a knock on the door doesn't usually mean something good. So retreat manager, you know, says, you know, please come to my office. Your partner's called. And um, so I call my partner, and I find out that um, my mom just got diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. I was like, wow, that was a big bring it. Right? And so as I was listening to my partner describe what was happening, and it was a brain tumor that metastasized from a breast cancer that my mom had um, three years earlier, um, I just noticed myself feeling this incredible calm. And it didn't feel numb. I was definitely like aware and shaking a little bit. But it was this realization of like, what is? Like, this is what is right now. And I have a choice to make. You know, do I stay another week or do I go home? And my sister was like, you can stay. You know, we've got everything covered. It's okay if you want to stay. Um, but knowing my mother, I better go home. <laughs> so, um, so I went home. And a little bit about my relationship with my parents. Um, my parents were, you know, were immigrants to this country, and they did whatever they could to survive. They worked really hard. They sacrificed a lot. They put us, my sister and I both, through college without us having to take a loan out or anything. My dad worked seven days a week. They sacrificed so much for us. And at the same time, they were not the most demonstrative or verbal in their love for us. Uh, They never told us they loved us. Uh, they never were big like huggers or comfort us, you know, when we were upset or sad. They couldn't deal with any emotions other than us being happy. And so for the longest time I had to suppress or not express or not even know that I was having feelings. And so um, there's not a lot of communication that happened in our home either. Uh, my parents spoke to us in the imperative Like, everything was like a command, you know, like, do this, do that, eat this, eat that. Um, The way that they would show you that they cared was they would always ask, um, have you eaten yet? Or, how's your car? And for the longest time, I'm like, why do you care, like, if I've eaten? Or, like, what the hell about my car, right? And as I got older, you know, I got less frustrated because I began to, as much as I wanted them to understand me, I had to understand them. And what I got to understand was that when my dad asked me, how is your car? He was basically saying, how is this vehicle that's carrying my baby around on these highways and not break down in the middle of the night, right? Or have you eaten yet? You know, food was a huge thing in my family, you know. Just ask any of my Facebook friends. Um, I take pictures of food like all the time. And uh, 
But yet my parents were very conservative people. You know, they were Republican, Bush-loving, Fox News-watching. Every time I went home, you know, the TV would be on. And it was, it was a practice <laughs> to, to be there. And, and so I didn't, you know, I came out to the rest of the world when I was 21, and I came out to my parents when I was 38. And when I finally decided that I would come out to them, you know, I called them up and I said, you know, I have something really important to tell you. You know, can I come over for lunch? And so I, you know, they said, sure, you know, come over. And my dad's a cook, and so he made this big spread. And, and then I sat down, and I said, um, TV's always on. So I said, uh, you know, can we turn Bonanza off for a second? Well, Dad wasn't happy about that. <laughs> so he's like, oh, this must be really serious. We have to turn the TV off. And one of the biggest reasons why I never told my parents is what, because I thought they'd, they would disown me. And I figured at 38, I, I was making my own money. <laughs> it's like, they can disown me and I'll be fine. So anyway, I tell them, you know, I said, oh, Mom and Dad is something I've wanted to tell you for a really long time, and, um, and it's that I'm gay. I figure that's the easiest thing that they could understand. And I start crying and, and getting emotional, and my mom said, stop crying. You're our baby. We love you no matter what. We've been waiting 18 years for you to say something. <laughs> I was like, 18 years? You didn't throw me a bone? Like I hung up all these pictures of Richard Gere and Rob Lowe in my college room to pretend I was straight and so you wouldn't figure that. It's like 18 years, right? After I got over the shock of that they've known for that long, I like got really sad. That I lost like 18 years of a relationship with my parents because of my own self created doubt that they would love me. And it's not to say that, you know, many of my queer siblings out there have lost their families because coming out to their families was not okay. But coming out to Bush loving Fox News watching people was not, you know, at all what I expected. So my mom had immediate advice for me. I think she's been thinking about it for the last 18 years. So she said, um, you have to do three things. Number one, you need to get your finances in order. <laughs> Number two, you need to get your, uh, take a self-defense class. And my father, who has not at all said anything, chimes in and says, and you have to change all the appliances in your kitchen. <laughs> I'm like, this is the weirdest coming out <laughs> ever. I was just happy that they were happy that I was gay. So I'm like, I'm just going with it. And so I did get my finances in order. I did replace all the appliances in my kitchen, and I've yet to take a self-defense class. <laughs> and so just a little background of like, where I come from in terms of my family. So when my mom got sick. Um, she had lost all movement on the left side of her body, and so she was in the hospital for about a month. And she was slowly regaining, you know, this was a terminal illness. They gave her um, four to six months to live. And immediately I told myself, okay, buddy, you've got like four to six months to clean this up with your mom. Like anything you haven't said to her or want to say to her or that you haven't forgiven or you, you want, you know, forgiveness for, you got to do it now. And so every night I would, um, and this was one of the things with mom, it's like, you know, she was so excited, like in, in terms of having a terminal illness, and she's like, wow, now I can eat whatever I want. 
right? And so whenever I'd go visit her at the hospital, I'd ask her, like, what do you want to eat tonight, Mom? And usually nine out of ten times she'd want a hamburger. So I would bring that for her. And um, there was one night um, she was starting to, like, be able to walk, and she was going down the walker, and... Uh, the hall with her in her walker, and I said, uh, you know, Mom, when I was on this retreat, we did a lot of walking meditation, we actually walked this slowly. And she turned to me and said, um, teach me to meditate. And I was like, what'd you do with my mother? <laughs> and so we went back to the room, I had her lie down on her bed, and um, I did a simple like, little body scan breath meditation. And she was in the zone in like two minutes. And immediately, in about 10 minutes in, she like suddenly opened her eyes and she said, tape that for me, I'm very relaxed. You know? Tape that for me, I'm very relaxed. And, uh, and so I said, sure, mom. And, um, and then when she got more movement, I actually started doing some Qigong that Tija taught in a chair um, when I was on the month-long retreat. And she was so into it, you know, and it was so tender to like watch her you know like do it and she couldn't you know this is what she could do and she was so into it so um that spring the same time my mom got diagnosed with this tumor i had um, to get this surgery done this major surgery done but it would take me out for like six to eight weeks and i made the mistake of telling my mom that i needed to have this surgery and she kept begging me, like, please have this surgery before I die. Please have this surgery before I die. And I'm like, Mom, you know, if I had this surgery, I'm not going to be able to help you in case your condition gets worse. She's like, don't worry about me. Please have this surgery before I die. Well, I postponed the surgery to November because she was supposed to die in, like, September. Well, September passed. She's still alive. November comes. She's at my surgery. And I said to my mom after I had my surgery, I was like, Mom, like, why do you think like, you've lived so long? You know, you've surpassed your diagnosis by months. And she's like, I've been waiting for you to have that surgery. I've been praying <laughs> that I would live long enough so you would have this surgery so I'll make sure you're okay. So my mom, you know, never told me she loved me or never hugged me very much. But that's the kind of love that she does, right? She'll pray for blessings and novenas so that she could see her kid through. So soon after I recovered from my surgery, she started to go downhill. And my sister and my dad and my aunt and I took care of my mom at home. And it was uh, one of the biggest honors and blessings I've ever had to accompany my mom home. And so as she was dying, I said, Mom, you know, it's like, what are some of your last wishes? And she said to me, um, I want you to come back to the church, the Catholic church. And I said, um, are there any other wishes <laughs> that you have? 
And my mom was a devout, devout Catholic. Uh, you know, one of the, she'd pray her rosary all the time. She'd read her prayer books until she couldn't read anymore. Her practice was way stronger than mine has ever been. And as much as I would tell my mom, it's like, you know, mom, I still believe in God. I still pray to God. I, you know, light a candle for you at, you know, your favorite Catholic church every time, every moment I can. And, um, but I found this other path and I'm really, really happy. And my mom had really no idea like what that path was. One thing that um, I used to do with my mom and dad that they had some inkling of the work that I do was uh, they used to help me count the dana at the end of the retreat. And that was a really cute thing to watch them, you know, put all the forms in alphabetical order and count the money. And, and they would be like, why did this person only give this much and this person gave that much? Like, don't look at the mounts. Like, just keep organizing, right? But it was a sweet, like, practice, you know, that we would have together. Um, and so when my mom, you know, finally died and she, she died... Uh, with all of us, you know, at her bedside. I vowed to, like, go to Mass, like, once a month, you know, in honor of her. And uh, a way that I felt like it would be, you know, honoring me as well as I found the uh, Dignity Church, you know, the gay Catholic Church in D.C. And it was, um, it's a beautiful community there. And for me, it was, like, really in awe of these people who you know, belong to this, you know, church, this religion that does not accept them fully. And how brave and courageous they are to, like, go against the stream, as the Buddha says, you know, to awaken in the way they felt they needed to awaken. So, um, I miss my mom a lot. I don't know if any of you have seen, I've got these um, three beings here in front of me, and it's uh, my mom and my dog, Casey, who passed away two and a half weeks after my mom passed away, and my friend, Joanne, who passed away a little over a year ago at the age of 57 from esophageal cancer. So many losses, right? And also, like, I had a rental property that burnt to the ground, like, in the middle of my mom's illness. And it was just interesting to like really get like, wow, you know, been doing this for 18 years. The fruits of my practice are here, you know, just to like be able to have this equanimity of like losing, like the, the rental unit was like, it's just material, right? It'll come back. Thank God for insurance. And uh, my mom lives in here and is all around me, you know, and, and my dog is... And I only had Casey for four months, but she uh, was the very first relationship I ever had with an animal. And um, I used to be really snobbish about that. Like, I used to think that people who loved animals were like people who couldn't get along with other people. And like now I get like, wow, animals rock and people can suck sometimes. (laughs) But this dog awakened uh, a part of my heart that I never imagined existed. So, um, this level of acceptance, this level, and when, and when my mom passed away, I was very 
public with it on Facebook, the, my mom's journey, and, um, and also pictures of Casey almost every night before bed. Uh, but when both of them died, like just the outpouring of love and care and um, that was out there for me and my family was astounding not only on Facebook, but through cards and visits and emails and phone calls. So that story of, like, if anyone ever really knew who you were, um, you'd never be loved and accepted, that story's pretty buried now. And so to, in a way, take this risk of not relying on this thing to tell me what to say is... um, more of that practice of just faith and trust and just believing that I can just be me and to let go of the outcome of how that lands for you. Hopefully it served. If it didn't, I did my best. We all do our best. And so what has me in awe of all of you is that you just being here is and means more than you know. Let's just take a moment to sit together. So as you continue in the silence, the noble, ennobling silence, and with this practice, may you develop and cultivate true faith in your own innate goodness, your own Buddha nature. That who you are matters. that your love and acceptance of self is the key to healing this world. about 35 minutes for walking practice and we'll see you back here at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.